Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Detect and Protect the Australian Biosecurity Podcast. I am your host, Steve Payos, and I'm very happy to be hosting this podcast series, which is all about sharing information on biosecurity and the difference that this makes to our everyday lives. Imported live plant material can introduce foreign plant pests and diseases that could be harmful to Australia's environment, agriculture, and economy. That is why we have strict biosecurity requirements for plant materials that enter Australia. Today, we're going to delve into the Plant Innovation Centre at Post Entry Quarantine, also known as PIC at PEQ or Picket Peck. I must say, I do love that name. We've spoken about post entry quarantine before on this podcast. It was episode five for anyone that is interested and is definitely worth a listen if you haven't listened to that episode before. For those of you, who might have missed it, post-entry quarantine is essentially a period of time that animals and plants, after they've arrived in Australia, undergo so that they can get the necessary tests and checks to ensure that they've met permit conditions and are free of exotic pests and diseases. The Plant Innovation Centre plays a vital role in identifying, developing and delivering new and innovative diagnostic and treatment technologies to improve Australia's capacity to address current and anticipated plant biosecurity risks. Joining me today is Dr. Adrian Dinsdale, Assistant Director at Picket Peck, who is leading a dedicated team of plant scientists and is here to tell us all about the fascinating advancements in detection technologies and business practice innovations that the team have been working on. Now, this is a fantastic space that the department has developed so much over the last few years. Innovations are becoming such a big part of the business and I'm yeah, very, very excited to hear all about this. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Adrian Dinsdale. Good morning. Thanks very much, Steve, and thanks for the invitation. It's it's a pleasure to be here. It is. No, it's very, very interesting. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this discussion all about technologies and the work that you're doing at Picket Peck. And thanks for filling me in on that name, I must say. It's, it's very, very interesting and it's a good way to talk about the centre. So let's jump right in now, Adrian. Can you please give us a quick rundown on what the Plant Innovation Centre does and why it is so important for our biosecurity? Thanks very much, Steve. So uh, Picket Peck or the Plant Innovation Centre as the name implies, is a team of innovation scientists and we're based here at the National Quarantine Facility in Melbourne. And our job is to do exactly that, it's to, it's to innovate. So we are um, a real practical and applied hands-on team of scientists. We don't just work at computers, we have laboratories and we work at, um, at external facilities. And it's our job to find ways to manage the risks at the border that we always do, but to do that faster, smarter, cheaper, um, and so on. So do we, we can um, manage the risk of the increasing burden of, of exotic pests and diseases that are coming into Australia. And it's really important to do this because uh, the, the movement of people and goods globally is increasing um, drastically and is forecast to continue to do so. And we can't just keep throwing more and more people to inspect more and more goods. Um, the cost and, and the time to do that just isn't sustainable. So we really need to find technological and innovative solutions to keep on managing that risk. 
Now, the last two years, we've seen a pandemic where the movement of people has almost come to a complete standstill, but the movement of goods um, where it's been possible has probably ramped up a bit. How much of an effect have you seen because of that? And how much has that meant that you've had to, I guess, speed up the innovation or really think uh, hastily about how to manage that influx of goods? Yes, Steve. Look, that was um, that was a big challenge for the biosecurity um across the business really we were fortunate that with that increase of goods as you as you mentioned came the decrease in movement of people so we were able to redeploy a lot of staff who were uh inspecting goods and, and people coming in through airports to instead start inspecting goods um, at docks and and also in planes so i suppose the silver lining for the the pandemic for us here in, in what we do is that it it really sharpen people's awareness of of the need for biosecurity and the impact that biosecurity failures can have on on all of us in in all parts of in parts of our life uh, and so that's been that's been i suppose ironically quite good for us um, because it's been it's been a way for us to get better support to and to demonstrate the importance of innovation to keep on managing those kinds of biosecurity risks and, and hopefully prevent those kinds of outcomes in the future. I know biosecurity risk innovation has been a big part of, of the department's focus. I was involved in uh, one of the sea challenges that took place a few years ago where it was, you know, pitching, getting, you know, private sector to pitch ideas and, you know, in line with all the great innovation work we've been doing. So I know it's such a big focus and moving forward and that's why the work you're doing is so important. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at Picket Peck, uh, the involvement with biosecurity itself and sort of how long you've been there and, and what's happened to the team in that time? Yeah, so I joined the Picket Peck team uh, about three and a half years ago. It was a very small team back then. We consisted of all of two people, and one of those only worked in our team one day a week. So uh, quite quite humble beginnings. It was a real nice and small to start with. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I suppose I saw it as a great opportunity to to come into a new team, a new idea, and really try and and build it. And, and mold it into what we thought was uh, what our biosecurity system needed. So I came from a background more operational, um, but still very much a science background working in, in diagnostics. Uh, and so since then, we've now grown to a team of, of 10 people. And that's been really gratifying to see uh, that the results we're delivering um, have, have produced improvements and outcomes that have, have, have fed back into the, the success of the team so we can keep improving uh, and um, and building on those improvements we've been able to deliver. Um, and before that, I also worked for, for many years in, in sort of state government as well, and also in various science roles in, in both in industry um, and in government. Superb. No, that's great. And we can see with the expansion of that team and expansion of everything around you, how serious everybody takes this as well as coming to you know, identify and develop those new project ideas. And that's something I'm going to ask you about in just a moment's time. Before that, can you tell us about the work that you do and how that affects the everyday Australian? And I guess for the layperson, it's it's always something that's interested me in terms of you know, if diseases came through. Um, and I, I, first to put my hand up to say that before I joined the 
department going back six, seven years ago, biosecurity was something that you really needed to to get a full grasp of to understand. But once you once you get it and know what that devastation could be to fruit and veg crops, to livestock, um, you know, the impact is potentially so big uh, that it's that it's not funny. It's 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 very serious stuff. The impacts in dollars, the impacts in what happens to us being able to enjoy our bananas or our avocados or whatever that case may be. And um, I'd love for you to tell me a few you know instances and examples of, of how that work affects the everyday Australian. That is a that's a great question, Steve. And I love this question because one of the cruel ironies, if you like, of, of what we do is that when when nothing happens, that means we have done our job and we've been successful. But that does really make it hard for people to, you know, understandably um, grasp, I suppose, the importance of what we do. And and I suppose, as I mentioned, that's been sort of one of the silver linings for COVID. It, it has sharpened people's awareness, but we obviously don't work in the human health space. We work in agriculture, but that doesn't make the impacts of, of some of these things any worse. So some really good examples. Um, one I like, which people may have heard of, is called brown marmorated stink bug. And this one's quite important, not just because it's a agricultural pest, but it's also a real social pest. So even if you are living completely removed from food and agriculture, and of course, you know, we all eat, so we don't really, but the brown marmorated stink bug can grow up, to, can build up to huge numbers. And we've seen for when it's um, successfully managed to uh, infest areas in the US that, that what happens is that over winter, it likes to find little nooks and crannies to, to hide in and they've been they've been known to go into people's homes literally in the thousands and crawl into you know your remote control into your cutlery drawer into your socks and undies drawer and people get up in the middle of the night and get up for work pull out their undies pull them on and they find stink bugs um in their <laughs> uh, oh, so, you know it's not just about uh you know having apples that don't taste good anymore it's it goes beyond that and some other good examples are um so in australia we really only grow predominantly one type of banana called the cavendish banana you can't import bananas into australia they're, they're far too big of a disease risk but there's a really um devastating disease called called panama disease which has been found in a very small number of properties in queensland but we've been able to actually contain that and keep it just in those properties. And we're the only country that, that has managed to do that. Um, and that disease completely wipes out those Cavendish bananas. And so because of our success in doing that, we still have high quality, tasty, um, affordable bananas on the shelf. And there's there's lots more examples. I could I could I could reel off heaps. There's xylella with with grapes. Um, and there's rare imported fire ants, which sting like all hell and uh, are present in Queensland. But again, we've managed to contain them and I think are the only country that's managed to do so. But maybe I'll leave it there, Steve, because I could talk your ear off. That'd be great. Well, that's what we're here for. Xylella is the number one risk. Is that right, uh, Adrian? Well, it's one of the, the top risks in terms of our, our uh, diseases. Is that right? That's right. It's the number one uh, priority plant pest um, for a whole lot of reasons. But... The main one is if it got in, the cost would be literally in the in the billions. It can infect hundreds and hundreds of, of hosts. Um, grapes is just is just one of them. Lots and lots of fruits and vegetables would be really badly 
um, impacted by this if it got in and it's transmitted by insects that, that suck on the sap. And we obviously have lots of those in Australia. And the impact on our native flora, you know, we don't even really have a good understanding of what that would be. So it's really quite scary, that one. Yeah, and that's I've heard a lot about that one, noting that it's that it's a big one. So something we need to be very, very careful of. In a moment, Adrian, I want to ask you about what some of the projects are that you're working on. And I know that you'll probably be able to talk to me for a while about this, which is really exciting. Before that, though, I'd like to just quickly ask how you come up with the projects and the concepts behind the innovative projects. Is that something that we sort of you know, really sit down and think about for a long time? Is it a little bit more you know, reactionary based on the changing environment or that sort of thing? I'm very, very curious to hear about how you come up with the ideas and uh, for some of these project concepts that you that you look after look i think the short answer is um it varies <laughs> so some of it like you said you know some of it is reactionary but we try we try not to be reactionary that's not really the good way to do what we do uh, but you know sometimes priorities demand us to do that but this is really one of the one of the great parts of my job is that is that it's i need to be um aware of new and amazing innovations that are occurring out in the industry. We're not really the kind of outfit that goes and does from the really ground up kind of blue sky, um, pure research. Like I said, we're, we're looking for solutions that we can implement that are practical. So I actually spend quite a lot of time and energy um, just sort of keeping my ear to the ground as it were. So I do a lot of um, networking. I do a lot of reading, I do a lot of meeting with people um, and just making sure that I'm aware of the developments that are going on across the world to develop new technology that might be useful and applicable to us. And we also work quite closely with industry. I mean, industry often have a good idea or good ideas of, of ways that could improve how we do business. And so it's really important to keep those communication channels open. Likewise, we try and interact with um, a lot of our colleagues in universities and state governments, organizations like the CSIRO. Uh, and so when we come up with ideas, it's, uh, it's quite common for us to then partner with an external agency so that we can leverage their expertise and knowledge with our, um, with our knowledge of what we need to get out of an innovation to make it work for us so that essentially we can be sure that what comes out of the end is actually fit for purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing I know with the partnerships of the department they've done. I've seen a lot of partnerships with the CSIRO. Um, I've heard presentations of the work that we're doing and, and those partnerships that we go into to really expand on the work we're doing. And I think that's that's very important as well um, because it'd also be that the university sector, is that right as well, where we've got you know people that are in there doing studies and, and, and you know being able to pass on research, for example, to assist us with all of that type of work would be a big part of that. Is that fair to say? Um, it is. A lot of it is the department directly funding external research, but what we are doing more, and, and our group has done a lot of work in this space, is to is to really mature that relationship. So for instance, now we actually have a, um, a PhD student now working in our laboratories here in the department being co-supervised by a university. So that's a, that's a first for us. In the past, we have paid for this kind of work to be done in the labs of universities but never has that work been done in our labs. So that's a really good way of not only um, 
building those networks and that expertise and that knowledge with with um, scientists in the university sector. But it's also, like I said, a way of making sure that the projects that come out of that really meet the needs of biosecurity. Mate, how monumental is that? The fact that we've got, you know, a student that's being supervised, you know, directly by us in the department. That must be a massive step forward in terms of, um, you know, actually having that as in, I guess you could say embedded within what we do. No doubt we've had the previous partnerships before, but to actually have them in here, uh, that, that sounds absolutely magnificent. Yeah, it's a funny thing, Steve. It, it doesn't sound on the face of it that that massive, but, you know, it really is. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm particularly proud of this one. This has been my baby for several years, and it, it's quite literally been years of work. It, it sounds like something that is not very complicated, but, uh, you know, when you think about when you do this kind of research, you're literally creating um, intellectual property. And so there's a lot of nuances you have to work out with your external partners about, well, who owns it and do we share it? And if we share it, how do we share it? You know, if you're going to use it and then can you sell it to someone else and can you make money from doing that or can we and who has control over that and who can talk about it? Is it private? Is it secret research? You know, all those kinds of things have to be considered before you can get these programs off the ground. So it was it was a, a steep learning curve for me. I, I'm a scientist. I don't know about contracts and lawyers, so I've, I've had to learn quite a bit about that. But what it really came down to was just being able to engage with with people and work with them and, and find a way to get to an outcome that meets everyone's needs. And I'm I'm really optimistic that this will be the first of, of many students that we will embed within the uni uh, within the department. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the, the, the benefits from that, I'm sure will be will be massive in the years to come. And you should be proud of that. Like you said, if that is your baby, I think that's something that, you know, to me, it's something that you can really, you know, progress and, and, and really get that excellence in knowledge as, as we push forward, because it's a great idea to, to do that and to embed that. And I think that's something that's only going to improve us in our own right. So well done on that, Adrian. All right, let's uh, talk about some of the really exciting stuff. What are some of the projects that the team is working on at the moment? And I guess what you can tell us on this is, is something I'm very excited about. So please take it away. Well, how long have we got, Steve? <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll try not to. Do, but I'll try not to go too long. So our, our treatments mostly, not entirely, can be broadly split into sort of two categories. So we do a lot of work in diagnostics. So that is work to detect and identify exotic pests and diseases. And the other main, uh, I guess, arm of what we do is more about treatments. So finding ways to treat goods so that we don't need to try and detect pests and diseases because we can be confident that they've been managed. So treatments are always great where we can do them, but they're a very blunt tool and oftentimes we, we can't use them because they will um, damage the things that you know we're, we're trying to protect. So particularly with things like um, you know fresh produce, they're, they're very uh, um, sensitive to a lot of treatments. So we play with things like um, gamma irradiation and electron beams to try and find new ways to to treat things, to manage the biosecurity risks without um, harming the goods. Likewise, we even do pretty unsexy science really with things like um, humidity and, and dry heat to try and do the same thing. Um, they're, they're 
you know, not very exciting tools as a scientist, but, you know, we're really about just doing what is best to protect um, our environment, our agriculture, whether it's sexy or not, that's very much a secondary thing. On the other side with the diagnostics, which is a bit sexier, if you ask me as a as a scientist, um, we have some really amazing technology that's that's recently become available. So, for instance, um, here where I work at the quarantine facility, in the past, if we had identified uh, an exotic pathogen, it would take us up to a week to get a DNA sequence on that to be to be absolutely sure of the identification. We've been using some new tools here, using something called a MinION, which uses uh, a technique called nanopore sequencing. And now we've been able to show in our lab that we can do that in a, in a matter of hours and get exactly the same result with the same level of confidence. So that's going to be a massive improvement. So when you've got a, a shipment of goods waiting at the docks, for instance, and it's perishable, you can't wait a week in the summer to see if you can release that shipping container of broccoli, for instance. But now that we can do that in a few hours, that's a feasible outcome. So, you know, massive savings all around um, in, in lots of ways. How much does that mean when it comes to the, the identification of for, for unknown specimens then when we talk about the minion and it's got to do with DNA sequencing and, and that sort of thing. Is that right, this technology? That's right. Yep, that's exactly what it does. So with that, what in terms of you know the fact that we're trialing that and that sort of thing, what does it mean in in terms of that identification process and uh, and how crucial is that I guess to to in in terms of identifying that specimen in a timely manner? Right. So previously, if if a consignment had to wait, uh, you know, like a week or thereabouts, the importer was really left with a quite difficult decision. They had to either send their goods for a treatment, which possibly they may not have needed, which is going to impact the quality of their goods, or they could have elected to just cut their losses and destroy it. Or the only other option is to get back on their ship and try and sail to another port to find somewhere else they can try and offload. But again, you know, the costs of doing that, the time, um, time with fresh produce means drop in quality, all those things are critical. So if we can clear these goods faster and cheaper and the importers bringing them in have more confidence bringing them in then you know improvements on the supply chain all around for for industry for consumers for retailers for everyone yeah these advancements seem you know incredible for me and if as you're talking about that's going to be a thing moving forward i know we've seen you know lots of instances where you might have a ship that's come in it's 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 stuck on stuck on port or it needs to go back out to see whatever the case may be if we can detect these things sooner rather than later then that's something that's going to be hugely beneficial for us as a department for the importers for everybody that's involved as well so there's no you know loss of product money, all that sort of thing that comes with that, which is which is very, very important. What can you tell us, Adrian, about high throughput sequencing, HTS? Um, and now I understand that this has been described as a bit of a game changer for detecting and identifying viruses in, in high-risk plant products imported into Australia. You'll know all about this, uh, but I'm very interested to hear about it. What can you tell us about HTS? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Look, high throughput sequencing really is going to be a big improvement for how we do our business here, particularly at the quarantine facility. So at the moment, um, people will probably be surprised to learn that just one plant um, that comes here into Australia, if it's a high-risk plant, on average, they would spend anywhere between six months to 18 months or sometimes even more here in quarantine before they can be released. And while they're here, they're undergoing 
a whole range of tests for all kinds of nasty pests and pathogens. And that, of course, is it's not cheap. It's expensive. So we're trying to find a way to do that faster and cheaper whilst still um, being uh, confident about managing the biosecurity risk. So the way high-throughput sequencing will, will really improve what we do here is that it can detect every single virus in a single plant in one test. So with this one new test, we will able to we'll be able to phase out over a hundred pretty inefficient individual tests with just this this one test. So um, that will reduce the number of tests we do here every year, you know, literally by by several thousand. So what that means for um, for for industry is that they can access the the latest um, and the best plant genetics that have been um, bred overseas. They can access them faster, um, cheaper, uh, and with a lower biosecurity risk. And that will flow on, um, you know, down the chain. Because if they can, if industry can access better plants sooner, then they can produce better quality produce sooner. Um, that better quality produce is usually has all kinds of benefits, more disease resistant, more tolerant to environmental stresses and, and so on. So yeah, this is gonna be massive for us. Great stuff, mate, that is so good to hear. What's, what do you think is your best story about the diseases and insects you've found or detected? Is Do you have something that's a, a real standout in terms of um, you know, a plant perhaps that was about to leave quarantine and then a test was conducted that found Xylella or let's say perhaps you found a disease that had never been detected before? It sounds like you've got some fantastic stories. So what, what, what would you sort of deem as your as the best one that you've got? We have found a few, um, a few new things to science here. That's always pretty exciting from a, you know, scientist nerd point of view, but that, that does still happen. So actually just last year, we found uh, a, an entirely new virus. Um, we found it in a grass. Uh, so people do import grasses through here. Um, this one was a, um, so in the end, we actually had the pleasure of being able to name it because, so we found it. So um, it's pretty exciting. Uh, hold on to your hats. It's called the Miscanthus sinensis mosaic virus, <laughs> which rolls off the tongue. But we actually quite literally just published that in a scientific journal um, this week. It got uh, officially released for publication. So that's that's really exciting. And we actually found that using high throughput sequencing with some of our trials here, which just demonstrates its value because not only does it detect all the viruses that we know are out there, it can detect the viruses that we don't know are out there, which our previous tools um, could not. So that's that's really amazing. Uh, in terms of, you know, real bad boys that we know are biosecurity risks and that we have come across here, I might actually refer to one of my um, my previous role where I worked in the diagnostic section. So in our team now, we do R&D, so we, we don't really detect things at the border. We're, we're more about finding ways for other people to detect them. Um, but quite a few years ago, uh, we had a plant that came through here and it was literally on its very last day in quarantine. And, and the very last thing we do before we release a plant is we have an experienced plant pathologist literally give it a thorough inspection. So just looking at it, usually under, um, under a microscope and just making sure it looks healthy. And at that very last check, we detected something that looked not quite right um, and closer examination 
uh, we discovered it actually turned out to be something called chestnut blight, which is a really devastating um, fungal disease on, as the name implies, chestnuts, but also um, other uh, plant species as well. And so we we prevented that incursion. And this was quite a few years ago. Really sadly, some years after that uh, chestnut blight did actually uh, make its way into Australia and the Victorian government is now battling an incursion of that. Um, wow. But, you know, we, we managed to basically keep that industry safe for, for many more years because of that detection. Well done. That's fantastic news there. And that's that goes to show that almost doing a one last spot check is, you know, can be the the most important thing. Like it's, yeah, there's only, you can do all of, follow all the rules, follow all the processes, but sometimes it's just that one last check, I guess in, you know, in, in a weird way, like before you're leaving the house, for example, all right, one last check, I've got everything, but then you do that one last check and here you go, you're, you're talking about that. And we found something that is very, very significant. So um, well done on that. It's the, the work that you're doing down there is fantastic, Adrian. Um, I'll just ask you one last question, which would be, you know, something that I want to talk about with regards to the future future. Can you tell us about, you know, any exciting projects that are upcoming we should keep our eyes out for? It sounds to me like you've got some incredible things happening at the moment, not to mention a few of the new technologies and, and things that we're working on at the moment. But what's coming up in the future that's exciting you the most? Well, very timely um, question, Steve. So literally this week, we just had two new projects that, we, um, that we've confirmed that we'll start in July. Uh, and you know, stop me now because I'm going to go into full-blown science nerd phase because it's pretty exciting stuff. If you're seeing... here's your chance, mate. Here's your <laughs> chance. Last question of the day. Fill me in. Fill me in, please. So this is a twofold project. Um, one of the projects is in partnership with RMIT University in Melbourne, and the other one is in partnership with the University of of Southern Queensland. And what we are developing with both of those partners. With RMIT, we're developing something called uh, a lab on a chip, which basically uses nanoparticle technology to create a tiny, tiny little integrated circuit which can detect diseases in, in you know, something the size of a, of a coin. And so the theory is that you can take that into the field um, and do really sensitive and targeted surveillance really quickly, cheaply, um, and easily uh, um, with confidence. Um, running in parallel to that will be this project with the University of Southern Queensland to develop something called microneedles. So the only problem with that lab on a chip type approach is that you need um, a clean sample, if you like. You know, you can't just rip off a bit of leaf and stick it in the machine. You need a, you need a clean piece of um, DNA, as it were. And that's quite tricky to, to get out of plants. Uh, much, much harder than it is from from animals, for instance. But the project we're doing with the Queensland group using these micro needles will allow us to create a patch that you can just simply push it into the plant and instantly you will get a clean DNA extraction. So our um, our dream, the, the product we're aiming for with this project or projects is to develop a, a fusion product, if you like, with a lab on a chip connected to a microarray that you can then get instant disease detection in the field kind of anywhere. So, you know, we're still some years off really before um, we'll get there, but it's just another great example of us being out there identifying new technology early that that has passed the proof of concept phase. So we know it can work. We know it will 
potentially do what we needed to do and getting the people together with the knowledge and the expertise to produce something that will really benefit what we do. That's incredible, mate. That sounds unbelievable as we move forward. And I hope that you can continue to come up with all of this technology, advance everything in the way that you're doing and really achieve all of the great things that you're doing at the moment. So Adrian, thanks so much for all that information today. Extremely exciting. I very much enjoyed that. And I know our listeners will too. That was incredible. So Dr. Adrian Dinsdale, thank you very much once again for joining us on the podcast today for your insights into the projects at Picket Peck and the impacts on Australian biosecurity. We'll be keeping our eyes out and peeled for the future advancements and innovations. Thanks very much again for joining me. Uh, Thanks very much, Steve. It's been my pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to talk about science and innovation any day of the week. Thanks, Adrian. And a big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning into our podcast. You can find out more information on Australia's biosecurity on the department's website or by visiting biosecurity.gov.au. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast series to get updates on future topics and learn more about Australian biosecurity. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Detect and Protect. Detect.